Austin with Scott Dawson. The least going to be Rain War. That's right. So I have a lot of questions because this is not a topic that I am an expert on. And I have listened to Scott Ritter and McGregor and Scott Horton and some other people. And it's just really hard to get a handle on the, I guess, the timeline is is what I want to go over just to make it clear for other people that don't know much about Ukraine because um, most of the general public, at least in America, they just think Putin's crazy and invaded for no reason. And um, but this all goes back a long time ago. And and I don't know what do you start it with the in 2014? Is that a good place to start? Like what's going on there with this? Um, sure. Violent sure. coup, this takeover of the legitimate government. Um, backed by America, and I guess it was uh, was it Kagan's wife that's on the famous F the EU phone call. Let's well, let, let's let's make it sure. even more simple. What happened in 2014? Well, Kagan's you- wife is Victoria Newland, who's now the second highest ranking person in the State Department. Victoria yeah. Newman. Okay. Newland. Yeah. Do you have headphones, by the way? I don't. Oh. Oh, well, my echo. I'll try to speak softer then. There was the Maidan coup in 2014. So Viktor Yanukovych, who should have been president, uh, is removed. And essentially the U.S. installed Portoshenko, uh, the chocolatier, we used to call him. And in the east, which is called the Donbass, it was made up of Luhansk and Donetsk, kind of a Russian-speaking area of Ukraine. It's been that way. They wanted Yanukovych, and that's who had won. But there was a coup with snipers and violent protests and a bunch of uh, oligarch-backed thugs, kind of uh, Operation Ajax, except in Ukraine instead of Iran. That physically took over the government. They took... The counter-protests down in Odessa, 43 of them walled up and burned to death. They shot police and all manner of violence. The most blatant coup ever in modern times. And then the Donbass did not accept that. They said, no, we don't accept this election. And also Crimea did not accept that election because the new government got in and tried to ban the Russian language. But that's all they speak down south and in the east. And Crimea had a secession and it was a referendum. Some 98% of the people voted to leave Ukraine. Ukraine was corrupt, run by oligarchs, 15 billion euros in debt and not getting any better. And they decided to join the Russian Federation through secession. Now, the media called it annexation. And he called it a Russian invasion. There was no invasion. There's a Russian base in Crimea that they were not going to let go of, but not a single shot was fired. No tanks, no pointing guns at people. It was just a referendum and secession. It was kind of like West Virginia leaving Virginia or Kentucky. There was a secession. It got accepted. Boom. So, And they had been Russian originally. They, that whole part of Ukraine was had only been Ukrainian since 1954. And 
So that was in 2014. And 2014 and 15, Ukraine went to war with the Donbass. Why? Why was the U.S. involved in yes. a violent government takeover in Ukraine? Okay, install so, somebody? right. So before that, um, when Putin first came to power, he took a lot of these oligarchs and threw them out of Russia. He either threw them in jail, like he did um, the Yukos oil giant, or he kicked them out of the country like Boris Berezovsky. Um, and so they took a lot of their wealth and they fled to places like the UK and Israel and Ukraine. And there are a lot of these same oligarchs in Ukraine. And that was sort of their bulwark against Russia. Russia has been going against, I would say US interests, but it's really Israeli interests, okay? The, they're all Jewish oligarchs. Uh, so that they have that magic key where they can flee to Israel and not get extradited, right? Right. And so you get people like that. Kordakovsky's in prison. He gets his nose broken there. Bertraska flees to Israel. Avramich goes to England. Bersowski goes to England. Um, he's the one that ran a media company, was sort of the Rupert Murdoch of Russia for a while worse than that even uh, and they know each other actually he actually built them out in Sibnef which is now called Gazprom but a lot of their assets and stuff are being liquidated Russia turned itself around uh, 1.7 million Russians died in the 90s from their transition and out of communism to uh, become a capitalist state because they didn't have venture capitalists come over in fair auctions and transfer of the state-owned assets over to entrepreneurs they it was just a bunch of rigged elections and mafia control over appraisal and all these um so how did we organize crime and up and everything <laughs> how did we get this recorded phone call from victoria newland talking about green lighting this violent takeover of the ukrainian government to protect these oligarchs who does that come from? Like, how did that get leaked? Uh, it's from the Ukrainian Anti-Corruption Agency is where I got it from. And so she's calling Payat. And that actually got, when they put that out, it went around BBC and American papers and things because of the line where she says, F the EU, right? right. Well, what are you going against the union for? That was her pick to put Yatsnook in charge, who she just called Yats. Uh, and you can just see, like, why is the U.S. official just deciding who to install in Ukraine? As they did get Yatsnook and then and Poroshenko. Ukraine has a, a president and a prime minister, by the way, like a lot of countries do, like France does, like Israel does. But they're just openly discussing this, and the anti-corruption agency got wind of this. Also, that's who leaked the Biden phone call, firing the prosecutor who was looking into Grisma um, Holdings, which Hunter Biden didn't really work for, but was on the payroll for. You can't say he worked because he didn't. He doesn't speak Ukrainian. He doesn't know anything about oil, but he was just sort of on the payroll as, as buying influence. 
the prosecutor's name was Victor Shokin, um, and he got fired. And there's another call, same thing the anti-corruption agency has this, plus Joe Biden admitted it at a Council of Foreign Relations meeting. He's dumb enough to sit there and brag about it. Yeah. Which he used to do. Like prior to the internet, that was a perfectly safe You're not thing getting to do. Brilliant. And uh, or they changed. Right. You better get <laughs> yeah. getting at firing by morning or you're not going to get your billion dollars. Now, all these little wigs used to sit around and talk like that at their CFR meetings and Bilderberg and stuff because there was no Internet. And there was zero chance that this was going to end up on TV. So they would just openly brag and laugh and stuff. But now the you know, one person catches that on a cell phone, they can go run to what's left of social media and get it out there. Now they did censor that. I mean, it got, they came down hard. If you were reporting any of this on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you'd lose your account, but it still got around. People kept copying it, copying it and sticking it on rumble and bit shoot and things like that. And so it went around and it's, it's Ukraine has been a hotbed for human trafficking uh, bioweapons labs, which are illegal to do gain a function in the US. So they just go over there and do it. Running the white slave trade down from Kiev to Tel Aviv, uh, and protecting career criminals and working with oligarchs to weaken Russia and cause a conflict with Russia. NATO thought they could actually win this because Russia ruins their ambitions in the Middle East. Russia helped, uh, it was their, they helped Iran get nuclear energy. Russia protected Syria when the U.S. was covertly backing ISIS to throw over that country and gave them anti-air defense weapons like S-300s, which they even shot down in an Israeli plane on St. Patrick's Day, best St. Patrick's Day ever. They were able to shoot down an F-16 and even shoot one, another one and force it to land. And so without Russia, Syria would have had the Iraq model. They would have fallen apart. Al-Qaeda would have taken over, kind of like Libya. But Russia squashed those yeah. ambitions. And Russia is currently aiding the earthquake victims, right? Russia helps create the BRICS movement to counter the World Bank and IMF. They have that BRICS, which is Brazil and Russia, India, um, and South Africa and China. And so they go against the US-Israel monopoly and hegemony. And so they hate Russia. He jailed the oligarchs. He threw them out. He helps Iran. He helps Syria. All of Israel's ambitions are squashed because of the Russians. It's a economic and military power that breaks the hegemony, breaks the monopoly. There is, there is a two-tier. It's a multipolar world. It's no longer a superpower. Russia has been able to be strong enough to at least defend its own backyard. And they thought that they could create and this is their own words, another Afghanistan where it would be like Russia's Vietnam. Yeah, yeah they bleed them, bleed them, bleed them, bleed them economically and bleed them militarily in Ukraine. We'll pump up Ukraine with weapons and bunker them in and trenches and concrete uh, catacombs and things. Oh, um, now, the same reporter, and it's, this is awful, I forgot his name, but He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He broke the the uh, big massacre in Vietnam, the Mylay. Yeah. Saying that America blew up that underwater pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, yep. or 1 or 2, or got well, 3 out or something yeah. like that. And, um, if that's okay. true, 
Nord Stream 1 is two lines, and Nord Stream 2 is two lines. So it's just gas and oil, right? And um, they blew them all up. And everyone knew that. Like, everyone knew it had to be America. As if why – like, the lie doesn't even make sense. Why would Russia blow up their own pipeline down no. to Germany? They could just turn it off instead. Like, there's no need. Um, that – he doesn't really source it's a credible journalist because he's done so much or she i don't even know but um i you can't find that anywhere other than online they don't talk about it on television at all and that's how you know it's credible (laughs) it went out on substack because he can't get that in the new york times right you can't get that all it's not just that all the war propaganda from ABC, CNN, Fox, etc. It's all pro-Ukraine, with the exception of Tucker Carlson, maybe. Now, is that for the military-industrial complex, or is that for that just economically trying to bleed Russia, or both? It's because the U.S. doesn't have a free press. I mean, it was like that for the Iraq War. Every single one of them said there's WMDs and wouldn't let anyone else talk. Right, every they single one of them. Kids out of the incubators. <laughs> yeah, babies on incubators, and Tom Lantos ranting about that, and George Bush Senior and stuff. They all lied. Um, it was Coach Hill Knowlton got into Naira, and she got up there. Oh, they put him on the cold floor. It was staged. It never happened. I know and the then, Canadians busted that one out. The um, <laughs> caught him red-handed lying. They lied. They lied. The Office of Special Plans lied about the second Iraq War, yellow cake uranium from Niger, which is based on forgeries, lied about aluminum tubes, lied about anthrax, lied about mobile weapons labs, lie, 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 lie. But the reason the lie worked is because every single network, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they all went along with it. That's why the mobile lep- weapons labs were always a cartoon. Yeah, because they didn't really exist. Diagram. They didn't have any photos of them because there weren't any. Yep. That was like just, Miller. just make one somewhere and lie to us better. Come on. Yeah, why didn't you plant some WMDs? Because it didn't matter. Like, once they had their war and flipped a rock back to the Stone Age, it didn't matter. And they know there's not going to be consequences. Like, you know you're going to get caught red-handed, and there aren't really WMDs. Then what are you going to do? Well, like, well, then we're just going to start lying about Syria because the goldfish brains won't remember. Yeah. And they're right. They didn't. <laughs> Scott Ritter said something that, that made a lot of sense to me, but it was also really sad. That the uh, military-industrial complex is nothing new, of course. There's the famous speech by Eisenhower, and we've all, you know, we know that weapons companies like Lockheed Martin Bowen make a lot of money off of war. That's nothing new. But what he said that was a little bit disturbing, in his opinion at least, Ukraine has a farce chance in a windstorm of winning. They're going to lose no matter how much money you give them, no matter how much aid is given by the United States and Europe. They're not going to win. And so by giving them all of this military equipment and money, all you're doing is making the conflict longer and more people die. Right. And in his mind, he the way that he was talking about it, at least, it sounded like Congress knows that too. And yet, 
they still vote to do it because it enriches themselves or because they don't care. Like, what's this they said? No, um, it's because we'll it's political suicide not to. The mass, media will, the mass media will turn on you unless you comply. Right. right. The only the only way you're going to get positive media. The only time the press was ever positive about Donald Trump is when he bombed Syria with cruise missiles. Then all of them, you can look back at it. Every single one of them said he's become presidential, presidential, presidential. Why? Because he's blowing stuff up with Raytheon missiles. Right. It's one of the dumbest things he did was bomb Syria and kill Soleimani. And those are the two things he was praised for the most by people who had a sustained hatred of the man and just dogging on him every day, except when he did those two horrendous things. The, then they agreed with that, right? And they're all for the war propaganda in Ukraine. But there are about 20, 22 congressmen who did not give Zelensky standing ovations, who are sort of this America First Party, Matt Gates and Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and some others. Uh, are seen through the propaganda and we should not be writing blank checks to ukraine at first they thought that kicking russia off of swift and putting horrid sanctions on them was going to cripple them financially and that might be why russia kind of pussyfooted its way into ukraine still like show some force but still trying to negotiate still, still trying to negotiate because they were also worried about the sanctions and then economic fallout but then it didn't work. Like Putin's war chest and his countermeasures were solid, but they didn't know that. You know, they just hoped that. Turns out he was right. So then he's like, well, they are not able to sanction us. Put the foot on the gas. So he mobilized his SMO, he increased it. And because they don't have to hurry, since the clock is on their side, if you're having a war of attrition, you just let the other side bleed. Ukraine has all the money, you know, from the United States, weapons from the United States to the rest of NATO. They're not going to run out of money. They're not going to run out of weapons, but they are going to run out of personnel. They just don't have enough fighting age men, no matter how many toys they have or dollars they have to continue this war. So to save casualties on itself, Russia has sat back with superior and numerically superior artillery, and they have been bombing the piss out of Ukraine, soften them up, and then mop them up. It's a very slow and methodical way to take territory, but their aim is not to take the territory. Their aim is to kill the opposing military. And they know they have way more people. So even if it's even, which it isn't, a lot more Ukrainians are dying. But if it was 50-50, Ukraine loses because Russia is a far larger country and far more soldiers. So all these defensive networks that they put up in Mariupol and Bakhmut and these different areas are failing because Russia doesn't need to charge. They can surround, envelop rain down artillery every day, soften them up, cut off all the roads and starve them out, right? And then put them on a bus, send them to Siberia as prisoners, whatever. It's, yeah, why siege? Like, you lose a lot of men if you have to do a siege. Now, like to, now to yeah, do a siege, in, 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 in ancient times, right, 
you had to have enough logistical support and supply line to feed your army as it surrounded their castle. And it was a game of who runs out of food first, right? If you run out because you can't get anything in or out and we don't, then you have to white flag. But if we run out, then we have to leave the field. And so if you thought we don't have enough provisions for a long siege, then you have to do the blood sacrifice of the battering ram and knock down the thing and get the ladders over the wall and just overrun them. But you're going to take a heavy loss, right? Well, Russia has Russia right next to Ukraine. They have very good logistics. Their troops have all the supplies they need, all the food they need. Ukrainians are the ones where their electricity has been cut off because of Russian cruise missiles. Well, they're sitting they're there in the, the snow. In the generators. and uh... Uh, Yeah, well, their own government is squandering all this aid. Like The aid starts in the West, and very little of it gets to the front line. There's all these crooks. Taking it. Mm-hmm. They're taking it. Selling That's stuff disgusting. on the black market. Yeah, they're selling out like their own men are out there fighting on the front line. And you got these middlemen that will sell javelins or whatever to make a buck and then leave. Right. They're going to get out of there. So because of the utter corruption in Ukraine, uh, even what they do get is being squandered on black markets and criminals. And the rail lines are electric lines so when you cut off the electricity the trains stop coming they're not getting supplies they're sitting there in the snow for weeks right laying in trenches in the dirt in the freezing cold bad rations and russia knows this and the russian troops they got food rations electricity all that so they're sitting pretty hitting them with artillery they'll surround them and they're just going town by town and like go ahead and surrender you neo-nazis whatever and so it's this methodical, slow-paced gobbling up of Ukrainian personnel, because that is really the only strategy that will work. Uh, because Ukraine's not going to run out of tanks and guns and and uh, ammo because they have the whole NATO factory to supply it. The U.S. will just keep pumping up hundred and twenty billion dollars. Go ahead, You're, you have an infinite amount of money, basically. Uh, and they can send in high Mars, they can send in javelins, they can send in Brad laser, which are shit transport, but in Abrams or whatever. And they could twist the arm of the Germans, let go of Leopard 2 and 24As and all the Leopard British. Said is it. Good, but... it is a good tank, but um, I mean, the T90 and all those T series that Russia has are equivalent for this type of warfare in the snow that they're dealing with. So, but that's not the tank, tanks only really work in combination with infantry and other things like a tank by itself is a great it's just a sitting duck right like you just hit it with anti-tank or hit it with a helicopter or whatever but like they um they work very well in hybrid armies the tanks that ukraine are getting they don't necessarily know how to to uh, shoot and move they don't have the tactics down they don't know how to integrate it with the rest of their foot soldiers and artillery and everything um and the drone warfare this is the first war i mean i guess you could argue the azerbaijan conflict and a little bit the georgia conflict but this is the first war where drones were like really really drone versus drone combat even happened like they're really prominent in this war as well as the kamikaze drones that we call them the persian lawnmowers they come from iran and they sound like yeah and bang um much cheaper than a cruise missile doesn't have the payload but it gets the job done and what you can do is you can just flood the air with them just send in like 14 of them instead of one missile just throw a whole bunch yeah. of these cheap little not only that but the the kind of fog of war is gone with all these surveillance drones too 
Right, surveillance, eye in the sky, yep, Starlink, all that. Now, but you can cut that off with electronic warfare. You can make those go dark, right? So you do still need drones and and even blimps and like the the little tiny ones um, as sort of a secondary thing to get around electronic warfare. Um, Satellites can be blocked by a cloud, you know, big cloud. You can't see what's under it. Like, so you do need some lower level things, um, tower and sighting and, and computation scopes and things that are on the armored vehicles. They can see extremely far and hit what they want to hit. But the drone tech, like, to get around the camo and electronic warfare and other things, you literally physically need to be above them looking down sometimes, which also allows you to direct your artillery and it also allows you to um crash into it if you need be or drop a bomb with your drone it's annoying and they can shoot down the drones and you can make another one uh and the strategies you want a combination of good and trashy drones sometimes you want the quality thing that can go undetected and good information good intel crispy clear images and so on sometimes you just want to litter it with trash because if it's good air defense, well, if you overwhelm it, and a whole bunch of them get shot down, but some won't. So you get your intel or you get to kamikaze into them, right? So it's a kind of scissor paper rock. Some's better for some situations. Sometimes sometimes cheap, but numbers is better. Sometimes quality, but fewer is better. It all depends on the operation. That's the kind of the battle tactics that they have to play with. But the name, the queen or king of the battlefield has been artillery. And Russia has superior artillery. Now, the American HIMARS, which are too few in number, those have been devastating. When they, they hit that Russian barracks and killed like 110 in one shot over Christmas yeah. or over New Year's. That was the American directed, the American weapon, American satellite technique. Everything was American except the Ukrainian pulled the trigger. Right. It, that was America did that. Uh, and Russia responded like the next day they hit an ice rink full of Ukrainians with their own artillery and killed like 200. So it's it's sad that you hit our barracks. We hit your barracks. There is new ammo coming to the HIMAR, which is longer range. So they'll be able to sit back further and hit. And they'll also be able to hit deeper into the Donbass and even into Crimea with this new HIMAR ammunition. But isn't this kind of like, um, isn't this kind of like a white belt who's rolling with his black belt teacher in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the black belt is going like 10%, but as the white belt goes harder, the black belt's not going to let him win, so they just, the black belt just goes harder. I mean, as we give Ukraine more powerful weapons, doesn't that just kind of force Russia to use a little bit more deadly and a little bit more deadly and get a little bit closer to ultimately a nuke? No, they're not going to nuke unless we nuke because that's mutual assured destruction. They're not going to need a nuke. Well, what's right below that? You know, tactical nukes and Moabs and none of that's going to happen. Like what's happening is your analogy of white belt, black belt. It's more like, um, Russia was did not Russia's not worried about Ukraine's military. Like they can defeat Ukraine. They didn't want to kill a bunch of Ukrainians and they didn't want to lose a bunch of their own personnel. Like why have a war? Even if you know you can win, 
you're still going to have some damn more like a blue belt and white belt or something and like well i might get a bloody nose or but you know still i ain't worried about this guy what they're worried about is losing all future economic relations with the rest of europe like they wanted to keep that deal with germany they wanted to keep the economic deals they worked so hard to put in place for mutual benefit of their economies and they thought well if we just kick ukraine out of the donbass quickly and get them to sign on the dotted line and say they're not going to be part of NATO and basically reinforce the Minsk Accords, then maybe we can reconcile with Europe. Well, that ship has sailed, right? It's just there's not going to be reconciliation with Europe. And so Russia was kind of playing now. Yeah, they're kind of playing halfway because they're like, well, you know, I don't want to do this because I want to be able to negotiate with them later and still have um, economic cooperation and so on. That's what was holding them back, not Ukraine. And they didn't commit enough infantry. They weren't really prepared. They're like, okay, it looks like, especially after America blew up the Nord Stream line, it's like, well, that's over. So thanks for pulling. I mean, you really got rid of your own leverage, right? You're like, well, I could do this. I could do this. Well, that's off the table. So then Russia's realized we can't negotiate. We can't talk to these people. They They just lie to our face. So the time for talk is done. And that's really sad because they could have ended this war last June and they could have ended this war last March and they didn't. And now if Ukraine got out there and begged and said, okay, you can have the Donbass, we won't join NATO, we'll do, 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 they're like, uh-uh, too late. You have no leverage anymore. If we're going to lose our economic relations with Europe, we're going to make it worth it which means we're taking this territory and that territory and we're keeping it. So then we physically get more citizens and resources and land. And because like that's worth, place. well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, well, they're going to, well, they took Zaporosia and they took all the way up to the Dnepr River of Kyrgyzstan. They're going to take uh, Sumy and they're going to take Kharkiv. Odessa, I don't know. I think that's where they'll turn to Ukraine and say, okay, do you want yeah. to be a landlocked nation or not? Because we can take this too, and then your future's over, and then Poland would probably take a piece of the West. You can be a, just a dysfunctional nothing republic, or, yeah, you can keep Odessa, and you got to withdraw everywhere and do everything we say, like, and then, but at least you'll Odessa have a port city. Might be the final bargaining chip, like, because Ukraine's going to want to hold on to that. And I think Russia will probably. City push all the way to the Dnepr River, maybe even across into Kyrgyzstan again, but Odessa would be the prize. It is a bit harder to take because of the angle defense and whatnot, but by taking Odessa, that would make Ukraine completely landlocked with Russia everywhere around it and Belarus on the other side. So that might be something they could bargain with, say, okay, but if enough of the Ukrainian military is destroyed, they will not be able to say, all right, stop, you know, give us Odessa and we'll stop. Because they're like, well, you have nothing to fight with anyway. We're just going to take it all. They don't want West Ukraine because everyone there hates Russia, um, speaks Ukrainian, and they would, okay, you could kill the military and take it over, but you're looking like 50, 60 year insurgency. Nobody wants that headache. Um, but they could all—they could also flatten it. That's what the U.S. does. I mean, they could take the pieces they want, 
and just do what the U.S. did to North Korea, just pummel every piece of infrastructure and then leave it a broken mess that can never be put back together. I hope that doesn't happen, but that's one option. I don't think Russia would do that because they see other Slavic people as kind of akin to themselves. Like the U.S. wouldn't do that to Canada, right? They would beat their military and then they're not going to destroy every city uh, like they do everyone else. But that's kind of how I see it. They, But they don't know. They could flatten Odessa. They don't have to take it. They could just destroy it. And it's a lot easier to destroy than it is to capture. They just cruise missile it all day. It's they're unblockable. Just boom, 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 boom. Tell the civilians to evacuate. Here come the, you know, here it comes. Uh, Ukraine needs to negotiate now before they lose all their soldiers in Dakhmut, which is semicircled already. They need to negotiate and put well, it in the war. Back to Odessa, you think, okay, in Romania, the 101st Airborne has 4,700 people or whatever, but they are in a town in Romania that is on the coast near the border, like as close to Odessa as you can get and still be in Romania. Yeah. Um, then you've got about 12,000 U.S. troops over in Poland, and it's not a huge buildup, but the location of where they are is interesting, you know. It's a flex, and but it won't work. I mean, the 4,700 whatever, you know, uh, Russia's adding another 700,000 this month, right, coming in from this SMO mobilization. So they're going to get closer, close to a million person army soon. So they're adding another 200,000, 300,000. Here comes another 700,000. Ukraine can't mobilize. So there like seven that must mean there's an offensive on the way. Yeah. The, yeah, you think? <laughs> there is. For nothing. It's coming. And so... They will wipe out their electric grid. They could probably even hit the bridges across the Dnieper if they see fit or dams. And then here comes the armored division and infantry. It will overwhelm all their positions. An air campaign will be ahead of that. Uh, and that Ukraine doesn't have really any air force to speak of. They're running out of their Russian anti-air systems that they have, their S-300s and 400s. And... Yeah, the wave is about to come. I wouldn't, I'd say the end of March, I think is a little bit ways out. They'll continue how they're doing now. They'll get Bakhmut first. They already have Solidar. Um, they'll start going north, go and circle Kharkiv. That's going to take a while, but then that's when the lights are going to go out everywhere. Where and is the, the one battery of Patriot missiles that was sent going to go? What city? It'll either protect the capital or it'll go to whatever the most Ford um, uh, headquarter HQ is. And where that will be depends on, I mean, every day Russia's gaining territory in the east. So their idea, they wanted to launch south and, and cut that land bridge in half. But like that's such a like knowable move. So Russia's, you know, uh, putting up his porcupine defense near Zaporosia and so Zaporosia and they're not getting through there so one Patriot battery I mean it's ridiculous really the Patriot missile system is not going to stop a hypersonic missile anyway once you lay it out then you got to pack it up again and stuff and it'll be notified like this isn't Afghanistan like Russia's going to see it 
and they're going to hit it. That's it. Like, you need overlapping arrays of air defense for them to work. You can't just put out one alone. It's just, it's just a PR stunt, really. It's just for Lockheed or whatever. The Patriot, they didn't work well in Iraq. They lied about how many scuds they hit. Um, the Iron Dome system they gave Israel doesn't work. I mean, a, a lot of those rockets from Hamas, I mean, they aren't really missiles. They're just potato gun style rockets with no warheads and no propulsion. So whatever. And what they have Katushas, okay, yeah, shoot those. Didn't even hit those. What Russia has is far more advanced than Palestine or Iraq or definitely Afghanistan. They've got uh, supersonic and hypersonic and low altitude subsonic cruise missiles. They can fire them all once. They got glider missiles. They got every everything the U.S. has, Russia has, and more, because the U.S. does not have hypersonic. And the U.S. only has an air-to-air supersonic, the sidewinder. It's what they're using to pop balloons. Half, <laughs> 400 million dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to pop a balloon, like, half a million dollars. So it's 400,000, excuse me, but, like, crazy, crazy stuff. Uh yeah. Aliens, you know, they just didn't want, they wanted a distraction, so they'd have to talk about blowing up the Nord Stream. That is an attack on Germany and Russia. And by attacking Germany, you just attacked a member of NATO, which ought to technically trigger Article 5, which means all of NATO should go to war against you, right? But all of NATO can't go to war with the United States. The only, there's only three countries in NATO with any kind of real military presence, and that's the Turkey. U.S. and Turkey and France, yeah. Um, and then the polls are getting uppity, uh, but not in a position for a protracted war. They have some armor and some other things, but can't fight the Russians. Like Those tanks are going to get wiped out. Russia's got very good anti-tank, and they've got good tanks. And the only two countries that really practice the hybrid warfare of shoot and move and communicate are the United States and Russia. So no one, and you can't just train people in a month. Like the armor is not going to get there fast enough. So it will make it prolonged. This is kind of what the U.S. did when Iran and Iraq were fighting each other. They aided both sides to prolong the conflict as long as possible and wipe them both out. Arabs and Persians killing each other is a win-win for the Israelis. Um, but a lot of the oligarch's property is being physically destroyed. I have no crocodile tears for that. Um, Zelensky and Groysman and these people, um, they can all go to hell. Like, they're so corrupt. They sold Ukraine down the river. They're in an unwinnable war, and they're refusing to negotiate because they don't care how many Ukrainians have to die because the whole point is to use them as a proxy to weaken Russia. The same way they use cannon fodder like Al-Qaeda and ISIS to help topple uh, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. So, so how does this end? This ends with uh, NATO falling apart economically and laughed at as a military power with Russia taking and annexing all the territory up to the Dnieper River. And my only question mark is with Odessa. I personally think they will not take Odessa. Not that they couldn't. I just think they won't. They will negotiate that away to try to mend some sort of relations with a glooming fear of fuck around and find out because we can come get that whenever we want and it's going to put a lot of fear in the rest of the nato they might want to start building up arms highly highly suggest going against that 
uh, it's the end of the European superpower. Like this, there is now a two-tier world: the U.S. and Russia. And the rest of the NATO is a joke. And I see Russia strengthening economic relations with Chinese and Belarus, uh, all the stand countries in Belarus and stuff, and even like South Korea. And, uh, I don't know about Japan. It really hates them over the Kuril Islands, but some of their other neighbors are willing to just, you know, business is business. India as well, like all the BRIC nations. So they'll be fine. They have a, a large enough economic zone to really have influence and growth. And sadly, uh, there's going to be this ongoing Russian prejudice, ban all things Russian in the West for a while. But there's going to be sea changes. This woke mob and WEF and all that. You already saw like Hungary and Serbia. Like there are places in Europe that are pro-Russia. But there is Italy's getting to be like 50-50. Like, hey, we got our own problems with migrants and this and that. Uh, the EU and NATO might fall apart. That's my dream, too. <laughs> but I can see it breaking away. There was already Brexit in the UK. Um, there's going to be division within Europe. This migrant crisis is going to get worse because the grain and the fertilizer that used to leave Russia isn't going. So the global south is going to have an exodus and they're going to go into Europe, who still has open borders and cause more problems. And the public there is going to turn on its own leadership and say, why are we fighting Russia and opening our borders? We could fix this whole thing, our whole economic situation in the migrant crisis, if we would just get along with the Russians, buy their gas and oil cheap, fix our economy, shut our borders. Because the alternative is the end of their state. Germany is going to be devastated first economically because they were the ones buying the most gas from Russia. They were the wealthiest state in Europe, too, because they had that relationship with Russia. That's gone. It's physically gone. They can't get Russia step in and start supplying that natural gas. Not as cheap as Russia could. I mean, the logistics, you got to go across the ocean to do it. The U.S. and Norway can bring in natural gas. It can bring in oil, too. They're like Saudis at maximum capacity. They're starting to rub elbows with the Chinese. Like the U.S. is starting to lose all of its traditional partners. Norway might actually gain from this. You know. the, day, the day they reopened their new pipeline was the same day they blew up the old pipeline, and they worked with the U.S. to do it. So they, they look like a bunch of seething Scandinavians at this point, but people are still going to buy their oil because they don't have a choice. But yeah, I believe they will be offered a choice. I think Russia's going to come in and say, hey, are you sick of having a, to wear blankets in your room because it's cold and you can't afford to pay for the heat? Are you sick of the, your price of food going up because you don't have enough fertilizer? You didn't get a good grain crop yield, da 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 Here we are, you know. And the thing is, uh, money talks. Uh, I mean, look at the U.S. nuked Japan, and now they're best friends. It is possible to do the most horrendous thing in the most horrendous war and then become trading partners because business is business. And as anti-Russia as it seems right now, that can flip. Just like that, because they need the oil and the gas, and there isn't a way around it. I just wonder the motivation 
for this this coup well greed obviously but in various forms um i just don't understand they wanted to undermine russia for it's simple to understand they wanted to undermine russia because it was the only economic or military challenge to u.s hegemony to further israeli interests in the middle east iran allied with russia syria allied with russia they can't get their regional ambitions in the Middle East because Russian interference. And so the only way they Israel can get what it wants and grab land out of Syria and squash Iraq and go to war with Iran is if you get Russia out of the way. Because Russia gives them air support, Russia get Russia, Russia. The only way to do it is to bleed Russia. So they tried, fucked around, found out. Now Russia's winning. Syria and Iran and Russia are going to be stronger than ever before, and it's going to be NATO, Europe, and the Israelis that are weak. About time, really. They're the bullies on the block. They're getting their comeuppance. All right, man. Well, it's sad that so many Ukrainians have to die, as well as Russians. Like, people in general have to die for all these greedy fucks. That's what war is. That is all warfare ever is, (laughs) you know? Politicians fighting and poor people dying. Send the poor puppets to go kill each other so that, you know, wealthy profiteers can make more money. I mean, for the Donbass, I mean, they were getting attacked by Ukraine. Like, eastern Ukraine was attacked by western Ukraine. Russia came in to save them. But Russia is also saving its own strategic interests by not allowing NATO to build up on its border. I mean, they're not retarded. They know what comes next. They saw what happened to Yugoslavia. They saw what happened to Libya. They don't want the NATO model. So in their own self-preservation, they preempted that before the last moment. But they waited and waited and waited. Like, this should have happened a long time ago. But they were trying to avoid a war. NATO made it inevitable. And Ukraine's not even in charge of itself. Like It's got basically foreign oligarchs that run the country. But it's going to get fixed. Um, got a false flag in... Poland or some NATO nation so that they can all jump in. I'm worried about a a fake or even real chemical attack that they blame on Russia. They go, oh, look, there's a gas or whatever. And they're using WMDs. So now we get to use WMDs or we need they'll escalate in some way. Um, The problem there, though, is they no longer monopolize the media either, like Elon's Twitter. And some of these other uh, true social and stuff, people get out and go, that's not what happened. This happened, right? And it will be, even if it's just a few of us, even like you name Doug McGregor, Scott Horton, Scott Ritter. Uh, I'd put the Duran in there as well. Pepe Escobar, myself. Uh, been talking about Ukraine from 2014 to now. And people are sick of being lied to. They don't go to CNN to learn what's happening. They go and go, oh, what's what's Mr. McGregor have to say? Like they they because that's who's told him the truth. Scott Ritter, for example, he told you the truth during Iraq. He's like, nope, there's no WMDs. We inspected them. They're not there. He told you how they were lying about how many scuds they were shooting down. He's been a consummate uh, oracle of truth. So but he just I mean, he might be wrong sometimes, but he's not lying. He's being honest and he's telling you to the best of his ability his honest assessment of Russia and Ukraine, and people recognize that. And so they go to people like that. It's very valuable to have someone that you know isn't going to lie to you. Well, you know the three-letter networks will lie to you. 
they always lie to you. So you can't trust them no matter what they say. And that's what people are going around online and trying to seek out, well, who's who's been accurate, right? Uh, there's another guy, he's a YouTuber. I think his name's Alexander or something. It's from, called History Legends. You would like his stuff. All kinds of stuff. He's done a lot of great Ukraine war coverage. Um, there's some kid that does something called the mapping. He's sort of new, like 20,000 followers. He does daily maps. They're pretty good. There's this guy named Weeb Union, whatever. There are some people on YouTube, like still on YouTube, but they will get banned eventually. Uh, I hope they've all made Odyssey and Rumble and BitChute channels. Because that's where it's at. Uh, as long as people have some avenue now, I guess Twitter to a degree, to get the truth, propaganda is not going to work. It's, you have to have like a million lies versus one person telling the truth. The lies have to be repeated over and over because they don't make any sense. Right? Russia just attacked unprovoked and, and unjustified. That's the line, right? Oh, yeah, they just attacked Ukraine for no reason. Bull. <laughs> Ukraine started using heavy artillery on February 17th, breaking the Minsk Accord, and then Russia stepped in and used their own artillery. That's what started the war. Ukraine shooting at civilians in the Donbass region, as they've been doing for eight years, just not with heavy equipment. Before that, they're using snipers and stuff. They had a hot war up until 2015. Cools down, there's still pot shots and stuff going on, and then they heat it up again. And they even tried to join Russia, and Russia said no, but we'll recognize your independence as independent states, just the, the Donbass, the, the Nest Republic, Luhansk Republic or something. But that didn't last very long before they're like, okay, we're going to absorb you into Russia, and we're going to take these other two territories as well. That was an advantage because not only they become Russian, but all the citizens get subject to Russian health care. Russian salaries, Russian benefits, and also Russian weapons and logistics. Those soldiers are now Russian soldiers. So now they get all, all the benefits that come with that. And the largest state in the world just got even larger. I mean, Ukraine has made every mistake you can. They've already lost land forever. They're wiping out an entire generation of males. Just gone. A lot of women and others fled the country and will end up living somewhere else in Europe or the US or they're never coming home. They've genocided themselves and it's sad because this happens in Ukraine over and over again. Holodomor, then the communist invasion, Nazi invasion, communist invasion again, uh, then a routine bunch of oligarchs until they end up in a war with Russia and they've already lost a third of their territory again. And over 100,000 soldiers have been killed already. It's horrible. It is horrible. And it's only going to get worse as long as NATO keeps enabling them with weapons and encouragement and money. If we want the war to stop, it's really up to America because 80% of their weapons and 90% of their money is from the U.S. I don't know why we can't just get along with Russia. Like, who cares what Israel needs or wants? Why don't we work with Iran and Syria and Iraq and Lebanon? Greed. Why not? Just greed. No, it's this Saudi Arabian Israeli hold they have. Saudi's got an oil weapon, and Israel has a lot of our Congress <laughs> sexually compromised. And so. 
you know, they Epstein so many individuals, they got them by the shorties. They follow those two around, just like 9-11, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And they hate Iran, both of them. Nobody hates Iran more than Saudi Arabia and Israel. Those are the nexus. And that's the, the team we're sitting on. A bunch of Wahhabi monarchs and Zionists, religious fanatics. And But I do believe that the Shia contingent and Russia are going to come out with the W. There is no chance, not even a fart's chance in a storm or whatever you said earlier. Ukraine can't win this war. They can't without without another 9-11 type event and using nukes or something. There just isn't a way. The U.S. would have to come in and do it. And we think about it, we don't have the political willpower. Biden's not a popular president. Kamala's not a popular vice president. They're super unpopular and people want them out. And you've got a divided house between the lower and upper house. They can't stomach a war. People can't even barely buy eggs. I think America's in no position. And you think, why do they print all this money and give it to Ukraine? Why didn't Ukraine just print their own money and use that? Why has it got to be our debt? <laughs> They're going to lose. All right, any other questions? Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. It's about 2.30 in the afternoon here on the East Coast of the United States. Colonel McGregor is with us again. Colonel, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. When last we spoke, one of the last things you said to me, and I wrote a note to remind myself to ask you about it the next time we were together, you said that none of the senior generals in the American Department of Defense want to fight in Ukraine. And since you said that to me, you've written a brilliant and terrific piece in foreign affairs called This Time It's Different. And your opening line is nearly the same, but it's a little bit more sweeping. It says, neither we nor our allies are prepared to fight an all-out war with Russia regionally or globally. So can you weigh in on these two statements? Why would generals be leaking that they don't want to fight? Are we militarily and from an equipment perspective incapable of fighting Russia today in Ukraine or anywhere else? Well, I don't know about the leaking bit. Uh, depends on who you talk to. I, I'm simply saying that based upon my sources in the Department of Defense, people who are close to the uh, senior military leadership tell me that they have made it very clear that choosing to fight Russia in Ukraine would be a serious mistake and should be avoided. That's what they've said. And I think they're being honest about that. I think they're being truthful for a change. The second part is, are we capable of fighting? Well, of course we're capable of fighting. The real question is, if you're going to fight, will you win? And, and this is the question that people don't ask enough. This, this is, goes back to an old strategic axiom. Measure what you might gain by what you might lose. 
a, a collision with Russia would be a loss for us. There's nothing to be gained by it. The Russians have nothing that we need or want. There's no ideological hostility. We're not competing for power or control over any particular region. Russia's dispute is exclusively with Ukraine. We're a large part of the reason why the dispute exists. There's no question about that. But we can end that tomorrow morning if we decide to by simply saying we fought long enough. Uh, Russia has the upper hand. Zelensky, sit down, shut up and take notes. Uh, we must have uh, a ceasefire. But first, we have to agree to negotiations without preconditions. No does, does Washington want to fight Russia via a proxy war? I think they did. I think they regretted at this point, to be blunt with you. No one will admit it publicly, but if you go back to the donor conference where Lloyd Austin spoke to the gathered donors from NATO and other nations and said, we have a very short time left, a very short window of time in which to make things happen. And time is running out. I mean, I quoted him in, in the op-ed piece for that reason. He knows, everyone in Washington in a position of authority now knows Ukraine is losing. Ukrainian resistance is crumbling. The, the state itself is in danger of going out of existence. That's how bad it is. So the theory is, well, if we can give them anything within the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 days, perhaps we can rescue them from disaster. I don't see much evidence for that, but I think that's the theory. Can Ukraine survive uh, as a country if Putin pursues this war all out? whether for military reasons or for domestic Russian political reasons? Well, the first thing to keep in mind, and this is something of which I was not aware until I consulted with a friend who's done some excellent demographic analysis. And he points out that at the beginning of this war, there were at least in theory 37.5 million Ukrainians in Ukraine. And he makes the point that today that's not the case. Uh, there were already 2 million Ukrainians working in either Great Britain or the European Union outside of the country. You now have 4 million Ukrainian citizens, albeit Russians, people who speak Russian, living under Russian occupation or administration right now in the provinces in the south. Then you have over 10 million Ukrainians that have fled the country. To 10 this moment, million? 10 that, million. That's a because third of the country or a quarter yeah. of the country. Yeah, you've got a million that have gone into Russia and the rest that have headed west. Now, to this must be added the losses. And, and again, no one is telling us the truth in the West about the horrific losses that Ukraine has taken. You've heard me say about 150, 157,000 dead on the battlefield. That includes 35,000 missing in action, presumed dead. And I've talked about a total of almost 400,000 casualties, people that are wounded. In most cases, not all, but in most cases, more than half of those will never return to duty because the wounds are too horrific. In other words, they're permanently lost to the Ukrainian fight. Now, supposedly when Zeluzhny was in town speaking to Secretary Austin and General Milley, several people have insisted that he actually told them that 257,000 Ukrainians have died. That includes soldiers, in other words, those in uniform, civilians, all types, all kinds, 257,000. Well, we don't know. I mean, that's, that's an unconfirmed rumor. 
But what it does tell you is that today in Ukraine, there are roughly between 18 and 22 million people left in the country under Zelensky's control. Now, Judge, that, that number is roughly the same as the number of people living in the Netherlands. You cannot sustain this war with that small population. Judge, I'm not hearing you. Oh, can you hear me now? Gotcha. Okay. Apologies. It's so okay. For watching and, uh, and listening. Sometimes I'm all thumbs. Uh, I want to play a clip from Jack Devine. This is a guy that our audience loves to hate. He is, however, career CFA yeah. and for many years was in charge of American espionage in Russia and monitoring Russian espionage here. Here's Jack Devine betting on a Ukraine win. I'm betting on the Ukrainians still. It's not to say that the Russians aren't going to be formidable. I do think there will be undertrained. There'll be sometimes if you create something big and it's not well trained, they become cannon fodder. So I think it's going to be a really tough spring. And I think the war in many ways will be decided. There won't be a victor. In other words, the Russians cannot conquer Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are not going to beat the Russians. There's a certain point where both sides pull back. Even if you don't have an agreement, they lower their intensity. And that's when I think Putin personally is in trouble in his own country. And I think he goes. That's why the stakes are so big. So he's suggesting that this will be over when both sides lower their intensity. And if Putin does that, quote, he goes because that will not be interpreted as a victory for the Russian nationalists. Your comments on that, Colonel? Well, remember, the CIA has been telling us lies almost from the very beginning about everything happening in Russia. Well, when Mike Pompeo was running the CIA, he publicly acknowledged that's their job, to lie to us. So how do you know whether to believe them or not? Well, they do a very good job of lying. The problem is they're lying to Americans, and this man, Devine, knows absolutely nothing about Russians. I don't care what his job was, or about Ukrainians or the Slavic peoples that occupy Eastern Europe. The Russians are winning Ukraine is crumbling. Ukraine's on the verge of collapse. We're going to watch that happen over the next several weeks. The okay. Russians will crush out of existence what remains of the Ukrainian armed forces, and I think they'll have to go after this regime, assuming Zelensky and his friends don't rapidly flee the country to Poland or somewhere else. Now, having said that, the Russians are being very methodical, very deliberate. They are moving constantly, but they are not moving on multiple axes simultaneously. In other words, you're not going to see the blitzkrieg. What you're going to see on several axes are what I would call large meat grinders that are just systematically plowing forward, annihilating everything that they come in touch with that is Ukrainian until the Ukrainians are finished. There is no incentive for them at this point to negotiate with us unless we go in without conditions. Would the Russians prefer not to annihilate everything in Ukraine? Yes. They never went in there with that goal to begin with. But you can't walk in there and say, well, the only way we'll talk to you is if you withdraw all your forces from Ukraine and Crimea. That's absurd. It's so really what, what you're saying is there's no way that Ukraine, and I'm now paraphrasing you from the column, which I mentioned earlier, there's no way Ukraine can survive this war as an intact country. Listen, I just told you what the demographics say. And the, what's even worse is that Ukraine has the lowest birth rate in Europe. Oh. So in addition to having lost millions of people because... 
uh, frankly, people like Devine and his masters have decided to wage this war on the backs of Ukraine. Ukraine is destroyed. I don't know what survives of it. I have no yeah. idea what will happen. Uh, even though I am your friend and admirer and at times your student, let me raise your blood pressure one more time with uh, Jack Devine on a weakened Russia. Do we want a strong Russia with Putin and Xi? Is that going to bring us peace and harmony so we can live in isolation? I think Putin, the day he crossed, I'm on record. I'm on record in the Washington Post in March uh, last year, a few days after he evaded. He sowed the seed of his own demise. That is actually good news for us. Whoever causes it, that's a good news. A weak Russia that sees Putin going weakens China as well as Russia. Does that make sense to you? Uh, again, I think the man's delusional. Putin has never been stronger than he is today. The Russian people have never been more united than they are today. Only someone who's, who's never spent any time in the country and doesn't know anybody over there would make such preposterous statements. This, this is part of the larger false narrative. Look, he reminds me of some of the Germans that stood around in Berlin in 1945 and asked, you know, what about the inevitable victory? What's, what's wrong? What's happened? Because the regime over the last over the previous six to 12 months had lied so consistently and effectively that the Germans were surprised to see Russian and American troops on the outskirts of the, of the city. I think the, all I can tell you is that, no, he's dead wrong. Now, let's talk about this weakened Russia business. It's not Please. weakened. The IMF has now stepped forward and talked about growth in Russia dramatically improving. Their exports are way up. None of this nonsense that we anticipated that was bad has happened to Russia. Russia's in a very strong and healthy position. We, on the other hand, our growth is declining, and it's not going to get better in the near term. Secondly, Russia is a state with an important role in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. If Russia were to be destroyed, which is not going to happen, if it were to weaken, it would open up opportunities for all sorts of uh, potentially malicious actors to intervene. First of all, Eastern Siberia is not of much interest to the Chinese, contrary to popular belief, but it's very interesting to Japan and Korea. And the Japanese and the Koreans view Eastern Siberia as their territory because up until about 300 years ago, Mongols, Turkic peoples, Tartars, they were the only people in the region and they're brothers of the Manchus, Mongols, and Japanese and Koreans. So do you really want Russia to collapse in Eastern Siberia? I don't think so. You go into mm -hmm. Central Asia, Russia is a stabilizing factor there. In fact, Xi depends upon Russia to help stabilize it because the people in Central Asia have much more confidence and trust in the Russians than they do in the Chinese. How uh, unified is NATO behind Washington? I'm going to it play isn't. a clip. Yeah, right. I'm going to play a clip for you in a minute from the president of Croatia. It's not Germany. It's not France. It's Croatia. But the language is very strident. And the criticisms of the West are very strong and articulate. Uh, take a listen. Ja nisam predsjednik Ukrajine. Ako se Ukrajina želi braniti, treba li da pomoći? Razdragani pacifisti u cvjetnim haljenicama odjednom bi se napili krvi nekome, ali ne oni, nego preko tuđe grbače. Ovo je u određenoj mjeri duboko nemoralno što radimo kao kolektivni zapad koji u biti ne postoji, jer tu nema rješenja. Rješenje nije promjena vlasti u Rusiji. Da pače, njemački tenkovi u Harkovu će dodatno homogenizirati Rusiju. Politički će ih homogenizirati. 
Zbližit će ih sa kinezima. To se događa. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. The West is not united. You've been saying that. The tanks coming from Germany, he didn't mention the American tanks. The tanks coming from Germany will only gin up the Russians to fight uh, more aggressively. It's in nobody's interest to weaken Russia. And he's, a member of, and he's a member of NATO. Of course. Two things. Nassim Talib often talks about finance, and he talks about people at the top who don't have skin in the game. Our problem in Washington, D.C., and in many capitals in Europe right now, is that they're perfectly happy to fight this war until Ukraine ceases to exist, and a million Ukrainians are dead because they have no skin in the game. They haven't put themselves at risk, nor will they do so. And that's disgraceful, and he's talking about that to some extent. And then secondly, it's interesting this man is a Croat because, you know, the Croatians, like most Europeans, to be perfectly blunt, that people don't like to admit, were part of the crusade to destroy Bolshevism during World War II. But he knows that Russia is not a communist state. He knows Russia does not aspire to conquer Europe. The Russians learned the hard way that imperialism is a very bad form of government and business. When you move into countries that are not yours and you have to govern and sustain people that are not yours, inevitably there's bad blood, there's anger, there's corruption. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who probably more than anyone else inspires the Russians who are at the top today, made it very clear we should all be grateful that this horrible empire that existed is gone. We don't want to govern other people. We want to govern ourselves. We want our own country, this place called Russia. And that is the way the Russians think right now. They're not interested in conquering anything, but we are making it impossible for them to turn away because we make threat after threat after threat to dismember the country, to destroy its regime. And we keep talking about it as though this is something the Russians want. They do not want that. After uh, decades of German political leaders disarming Germany, and depriving Berlin of its credibility, I'm quoting your yes. article, uh, Chancellor Schultz decides to send tanks. Is this to please Joe Biden? Because he's not going to please anybody domestic, his, his domestic political uh, forces, is he? Uh, he'll please some people in Germany, a, a minority, I would suspect. The majority, I think, are somewhat horrified because the Germans, based on their experience, and they also know their own history, know that when Berlin and Moscow have cooperated and done business together, there has been peace in Europe. You know, if there's anything, any one war in human history that made absolutely no sense, it was the war between Tsarist Russia and Imperial Germany. They had been close allies and friends for hundreds of years. There was no reason for that to happen. It did. The Second World War, we know the background on that. It was a huge tragedy. Everyone decided in 1945, who was German, this will not happen again. We will not permit it. I cannot imagine Chancellor Kohl or Chancellor Schmidt, Helmut Schmidt, that some of your viewers may remember, standing up and urging uh, equipment be sent to this corrupt gangster regime in Kiev that's killing off its own people with these stupid uh, instructions that are given to their generals in the field with a military structure that is corrupt and, and, and celebrating it. On the contrary, I, I think they would have said absolutely not. Out of the question. This man, sure. Schultz, is not going to last long. And if anything, what we're seeing now, even though it is not patently obvious, is the beginning of the end of NATO. So, Colonel, big picture. Here's, here's my head scratcher. 
if the West, if the leading countries economically in NATO, the United States, Germany, Great Britain, France, want to wage this war against Russia, if Tony Blinken and his uh, globalist buddies uh, in the foreign ministries in Western Europe really think that they can use the war to push Putin out or weaken him, if Jack Devine and the CIA, or if Jack is actually articulating what the CIA is trying to accomplish, Mm -hmm. Why is the Western military response so tepid? I mean, you can't you can't fight the Russians with just a half dozen tanks and you can't fight them at all with tanks that aren't going to get there for another four or five or six months. And American troops in Poland are not going to keep Putin up at night. We have 100,000 troops in Europe. And of that number, I'd be surprised if we have 40 or 50,000 combat troops. That means... The soldiers, sergeants, lieutenants, captains who actually go in and shoot people. In other words, most of that is still support. And we don't have that much artillery. We don't have that much uh, in, in the way of immediate uh, indirect fire support. We're in no position to do it. We could bring in more poles. They can bring in a couple of hundred thousand poles to fight, but they're not going to be adequately armed to take on the Russians, and they're not going to be adequately trained. So it's, it's sheer lunacy. But again, you've got to go back and understand how this began. At the beginning, Putin sent in a very small force and gave them very specific instructions that they were not to kill civilians, they were not to damage infrastructure, because he was simply trying to demonstrate the seriousness with which Russia viewed what we were doing in eastern Ukraine by building up this dangerous force against them. Well, it took two, three months. He finally figured out no one is going to negotiate with us. No one cares to. In the meantime, we reached the erroneous conclusion that, see, look, the Russians are weak. The Russians can't cope. The Russians are no threat. We can beat them. Well, that was the wrong conclusion. And what we're seeing happen right now is a massive expansion of Russian military power on a scale that we have not seen since the Cold War. And this is going to be a permanent expansion, a large and powerful force. The 700,000 plus that are around Ukraine right now are a brand new force, a brand new army. This thing is poised to do one thing, annihilate whatever is in its path. It will do that. However, again, the Russians are being methodical. They're being cautious because they do worry that we are led by impulsive, erratic personalities in Washington. And that stupidly, when we realize that the place is falling apart, I mean Ukraine, someone will say, well, we have to do something. I don't know how many times while I was on active duty, I heard people at the top of the political structure say, well, we have to do something. As soon as they say that, right. leave the room. Right. Get the hell out of there. I mean, this is a favorite government line. They have to give the impression to the public that they're doing something, even if it's 180 degrees from what they're doing. But, but, the, but the West, whether it's Chancellor Scholz or President Biden, uh, or to a lesser extent, uh, the the new prime minister of Great Britain, Great Britain is like a boxer punching with his left hand and then apologizing to the gallery with his right for hitting too hard. What what are they accomplishing? Schultz is doing what he's done throughout his career. Remember that Schultz and others have grown up over the last thirty or forty years in this environment where there was very little change, and their formative period of experience came after the Cold War ended. And they saw a very different world. And they became 
I think, enamored of this notion that the United States is the hegemon of the world and that whatever we do is right and anybody who resists us is morally wrong. They've taken this position. And this justifies all sorts of dangerous behavior. I don't think that Mr. Schultz is going to last much longer. I certainly don't think his foreign minister will. These people are out of touch with reality. No competent German statesman over the last three or 400 years would have made the stupid remarks and statements that they have. Didn't, so he, just lose, didn't he just lose his defense minister about two weeks ago? Well, we haven't had much of a, in the way of defense ministers in that country now for at least 20 years. I mean, when I was, when we went to Desert Storm in 1991, arguably the Germans had the finest forces in NATO. I mean, they were top notch and they remained excellent through the mid 1990s. And then a series of leftist governments systematically dismantled them. This is after Chancellor Cole left. Now, on the one hand, they took the position that Russia was not a threat and it is not a military threat to them unless they make it so. And that was that was understandable. But they, they lost sight of the fact that if you have nothing, no skin in the game, as I said earlier, when it comes to military power, Nobody's going to pay attention to you. I mean, the, the Polish army could invade Germany tomorrow morning and conquer it in a week. Ooh, well, that that's the line of this, uh, <laughs> of, true. Of this interview. Colonel, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. By the way, can I add one thing that a lot of our people don't seem to understand about these tanks? Please. We promised 31 M1 series tanks. They have to be built from scratch. And people have said, well, why is that? Well, it's very simple. We have a form of armor protection on the existing M1 series tanks that is some of the very best in the world, if not the best. That was developed over many years. It's a very complex composite form of armor. We will not allow tanks with that unique armor to fall into the hands of the Russians. And we have to assume, based upon you know, the Ukrainians that have lost, we estimate 7,000 vehicles, including at least a couple of thousand tanks and two or 3,000 other armored vehicles that have either been destroyed or fell into the hands of the Russians. We have to assume that these could. So the decision was made to build 31 M1 series tanks, but apply the 1970s armor to them. Ah. So that if they fell into the hands of the opponent... It would not be a security risk for us. We would not lose this advantage that we have. But there's something larger here, and this is very important. There's a lot of nonsense going on about what we're going to send. And we you've heard all the analysts that are worth a damn and honest point out it's not going to make any difference. I think we're preparing an apology in advance. I think everybody in Washington in a few months is going to say, well, we did all we could. Look at all that we sent. We just couldn't make it happen. And I think that's where we're headed. In the meantime, millions of Ukrainians' lives are destroyed. The state is destroyed. The nation is destroyed. Who, who will be held responsible for that? If they point the fingers at Putin, he's the wrong man. He didn't want to do it. He was the reluctant fighter in this whole mess. He held off for years. He begged us to listen. You can go back all the way back to George Kennan, who pointed these things out, and right up to, to Ambassador Burns, who is now the director of the CIA, who wrote the famous... Memo, yet means no. Don't advance the borders of NATO to Russia. All of this is well known. Colonel, no one is explaining these things as you are, and certainly no one knows tanks the way you do. And thank you for the education and the passion with which you uh, have offered it.
uh, that you've explained to all of us. Always a pleasure, my dear friend. Okay. Thanks, Judge. Judge Napolitano. Wow. Judge Napolitano for judging freedom. I think people need to understand that the rules-based international order that the Biden administration, indeed multiple U.S. administrations are, are touting as the most important thing mm -hmm. is a mechanism of control, American control of all those who buy into the rules-based international order, um, whether it's through IMF loans, whether it's through the World Bank, uh, whether it's through the SWIFT uh, bank communication. There's this huge economic web of control that the United States is you know, asserting on the world. And we, the situation's become such, I mean, when we speak of the economy of the United States, we, we can't, um, you know, separate it from the military industrial complex that Dwight D. Eisenhower warned us about in his farewell address in, in 1961, um, where he said, you know, we, this is becoming a power in its own right. And when we merit with Congress and funding, um, it becomes a permanent, um, unelected reality that's going to dominate, meaning that defense, because we are so dependent on defense spending, we need to have a continuous state of conflict in the world to justify the defense spending. So if you want to be an American ally and part of the uh, international rules-based order, what you're buying into is being a tool of America to create continuous conflict. And our genius is that we don't suffer from these conflicts. Look at Ukraine. You know, America's not suffering. In fact, everything's coming up roses for us economically. Um, you know, we, we, we've, we've taken over Germany's economy. We've destroyed that. We're crushing the European economy. We're making them buy our liquid natural gas. So we're making record profits. Um, we're stripping factories away, jobs away. Uh, you know, we're the benefit. So we are literally the colonial master of a colonized world that has to bow to us and continue to support us. And hopefully people will wake up. This is why Russia and China say that they reject the rules-based international order in its totality. They want the law-based international yeah. order. And uh, that's the last thing we want because we break the law every single day. We have no legal right in the framework of international law to sanction anybody because they touch the SWIFT system. That's an illegal unilateral action by the United States based upon the dominance of the dollar globally and its status as a reserve currency. We've taken the world's economy hostage by the petrodollar, by the reserve currency. Well, people are basically starting to say we don't want to be hostages anymore. And, you know, it's starting to unravel. But the rules-based international order is um, it, it's it's literally a, a, it's it's a violation of international law. It's uh, the, the the personification of illegality, and yet that's how the United States chooses to promote its uh, interaction with the world today. Yeah, well, you know, to them it's normal, right? To them, uh, the whole world is just, you know, uh, as uh, Joseph Burrell, I believe, said from the EU, he said uh, the world is a jungle and Europe is a garden, right? And the, the garden has to keep the jungle in check. And it's an insane mindset. It's something you'd hear from, you know, it's something you'd hear from Hitler or it's something you'd hear from King Leopold from Belgium. It's an insane mindset. I can't believe it still exists within, you know. The I mean, that's up there with uh, Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, guess what? There goes your head. And uh, <laughs> I'm not promoting violence, but hey, uh, Burrell, you're not a good guy. No.
You're not, a, and you're not even that smart. Um, nobody sitting. None there of them are. No, none of them are. But that's the point. You see, the United States doesn't want smart people to rise into leader. If you take a look, you brought it up earlier. Emmanuel Macron, really? Justin Trudeau, huh? Yeah. You know, Schultz, what? We can go on and on. None of them are the best and brightest from their respective countries, but they rise up through the system that is defined by the rules-based international order. The rules-based international order isn't designed to promote intelligent, independent thinking leaders. It's designed to promote minions. Mm -hmm. And that's what you get. You get minions whose sole purpose isn't to help their people, but to ensure that what they do conforms with the rules-based international order for the sole benefit of the United States. And I think it's important to point out that that rules-based international order is is set and, and carried out for, that's not just the United States government, it's carried out for the corporations. What do you agree? The, yeah. the big major oil companies, the military industrial complex, pharmaceuticals. The deep state. The deep state, <laughs> exactly, right. Not allowed uh, to say that because that's conspiracy, but right. it exists. Yeah, of course it exists. Um, you know, I can't think of a single Western leader that I, I, I respect. I, can you? Is there a single one? No, and they all pale and compare. Again, I, I get accused of, you know, back when um, when, when we were going to war with Iraq. Um, the first time? I viewed Saddam Hussein was as one of the, the, the few rational voices. He was somebody that could actually think rationally. Nobody... Nobody talks about how he got in the situation that he was. I mean, you know, start with the premise that Iraq was a fake state uh, cobbled together by Western leaders who drew arbitrary lines on a map in post-Ottoman uh, Empire uh, to, in an effort to take a, you know, a, a Hashemite king and give him an Arab territory. But they, they you know, it was, you know, it was, they weren't thinking. It was like, oh look, Kurds. Oh look, Shia, and we're going to take a Sunni tribal minority and empower them. Um, it was a fake state that was designed to fall apart on its own volition. And yet Saddam Hussein came in and said, I'm going to try and make it a real state. Yeah. And he was working in that direction. I'm not sitting here saying the Ba'athist ideology no. is wonderful. It's not. But for Iraq, it was probably the only way that you could begin to unite this nation. And he lived in a very difficult region. Uh, Iran was bullying him with the United States permission. The Kurds were rising up with the CIA's permission. Um, you know, so there was just issues all over the place. He did what he did, but he's not perfect. But this was literally the only person that understood the issues and could think through rationally how to avoid the conflict the United States ended getting itself into. But you can't say that. You can't speak realistically about Saddam Hussein. He was the personification of evil, the most evil man in the world, the modern day equivalent of Adolf Hitler, according to George H.W. Right. Bush. Now we look at Vladimir Putin. He's literally the savior of Russia. My God, Russian people, fall on your knees and thank the Lord above or whatever deity that you embrace that you got a Vladimir Putin when you got him. Because Boris Yeltsin had spent a decade colluding with the United States and others to destroy Russia, to bring Russia down, to keep Russia down. And Vladimir Putin came in and said no. And he brought it up. Are his tactics perfect? I don't know. Uh, they worked. Um, you know, and, and Russia is a thriving state today with a lot of freedoms and values that we ignore in the West. Uh, one of the great freedoms is, you know, the, the, the freedom of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where have we heard that one before? Um, in Russia today, you know, you don't have the same homeless problem you have. 
Russian workers get a decent salary. They have guaranteed, um, you know, homes. It's a constitutional right to have a home. Um, walk through Moscow. It's clean. Uh, there's not violent crime breaking out all over the place. It's, it's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And um, the Russians have him to thank. And they have him to thank for, you know, making Russia operate within the limits of what Russia should be. He's not seeking to be a global superpower. He's simply saying that Russia is a power, a great power, and deserves to sit at the table with other great powers to, so that the world, so they can figure out how to make the world a better place to live for all people. Um, but we don't want to hear that because the second you do that, you compare and contrast him with the Western leaders. They, they, they shouldn't even be shining his shoes let alone coming into the same room with him and treating him as an equal. You know, the United States, the office of the presidency is, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So the office of the presidency should always be treated with respect and even some deference by global leaders. But we've put occupants into the office of the presidency that disgrace it, that embarrass it, that humiliate it. And uh, it's, it's losing its... Um, I mean, how can you treat the office of the presidency seriously with Joe Biden in there right now? Because he's, you know, at, at some point in time when he was younger, his brain worked. You can disagree with what came out of his mouth, but his brain worked and he was pretty sharp. Uh, he could, you know, he, he had the gift of gab. Yeah. So, you know, he could he could get up there and, and do the whole shuckster thing and fake people out. But today it's done. The brain is shutting down. Uh it's an embarrassment, a literal embarrassment that we've allowed our nation to, to be defined by a man uh, that has advancing dementia. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and so, and, and, and he's, Biden's probably the best Western leader out there because nobody else could, should even be invited into the White House to take out the trash. That's how bad they are. Then you have Vladimir Putin. You have Xi Jinping. <laughs> Quit calling the guy. I mean, I hate when people go, well, he's a Chinese communist. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden's an American Democrat. Um, yeah. But now let's talk about quality of leadership. Hey, how many Americans are there? What, 340 million now? We're getting up in that number. About, yeah. Do, pe do people know that China's run three successive, um, you know, uh, uh, um, economic campaigns designed each one to raise 300,000 Chinese out of poverty into middle class? They've done it three times. Three times China has run a campaign to get the population of the United States out of poverty in the middle class, and they've succeeded. Um, that doesn't happen on a whim. That requires leadership. That requires a man who can take a country with all the complex problems of China and you know, manage these problems so that they, they don't sink the ship um, and not only keep the ship afloat, but turn it into you know, the kind of you know, carnival cruise liner that everybody wants to be a part of. Everybody wants to be on that cruise. It's a cool cruise. Land at JFK. Just do it, please, people. Go go abroad and come back to America and go through JFK. I've been to JFK. And if you're not embarrassed, if you're not embarrassed, then yeah. I don't know what. Uh, look at the decaying infrastructure of the United States, one of its greatest cities, New York City. Decaying infrastructure, a travesty. Now fly to Shanghai. All right? Uh, look at the airport you land in. And then um, get on a train, a high-speed train. There's lots of them in China. And travel around and you're, you're sitting there going, my God, not only is it high quality infrastructure, but it works. <laughs> Trains are on time. Everything's clean. I'm not saying China's perfect. It's not. But let's stop denigrating it 
and downplaying it because they're communists. They're doing a very good job in, in, in dealing with the cards that they have been dealt. And China today is a global superpower that surpasses our influence and our impact on the world on many different levels to include the, the, the economy. You know, Biden was leading the, you know, build back better world plan. Uh, that's the thing he was trying to sell to the G7 last summer. Um, and the big thing there is that they had to be a, they, they had to challenge the Chinese in their belts and roads initiative. Okay, how are you going to do that? $600 billion. Now, it's not all American money. We're only, it's not even real money. We're going to, uh, we're going to put up $300 billion and hope that businesses kick in another $300 billion and we're going to change the world. Well, wait a minute. It's all theoretical. Hasn't happened. Um, and you're going up against the Chinese who, in the course of the past decade of what, invested between 7 and $10 trillion in global infrastructure development? You are so far behind. This is like entering a marathon. And you, your 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 opponent is at you know the is just crossed twenty the twentieth mile literally on the down slope to win the race and we're going to start the marathon now and actually think we're going to catch up and beat them right. ain't going to happen guys the Chinese are so far ahead of us in terms of uh, their imprint on the global economy and their control of global supply chains and this is something America should focus on you know one of the reasons why we're losing the Russian campaign the the against Russia is that we fundamentally didn't, we had no understanding of the Russian economy and, uh, and the role that energy security plays in the Russian economy. We denigrated, I mean, again, Americans are great with one-liners. Russia is nothing more than a, a gas station disguised as a nation. How many times do you hear that over and over again? Oh, they are, they got energy. You take that away, they got nothing. Okay, well, try and take it away. You can't, why? Because Russians know energy better than we do. And Russia knows the global energy markets better than we do. And Russia, also, is, being a major energy producer, can make alliances with other major energy producers who are saying, hey, if we let them get away with constraining Russia's economy by attacking the energy sector, what happens when they get mad at us? And so Russia has outplayed the United States. You know, we've been, we put the most stringent economic sanctions package in the world on Russia designed to cripple their economy. Even the Russian leadership was saying we, that they thought that they were going to have 20 to 25 percent uh, contraction of their of, the, of their economy. It contracted, uh, I think, uh, the, the number ended up being around 2.2%. And next year, it's actually going to grow. And think about that, what I'm saying. A nation that has been hit with the most stringent economic sanctions in the world by the world's largest economic powers, that's at war, in a very expensive war, having its energy curtailed is going to grow. Their economy is going to grow next year. <laughs> And that's, that's, that's amazing. People have said that Russia is going to have uh, funding problems. Really? I don't know. Um, maybe you should study the Russian economy because, again, with all this war, with all these competing requirements on the budget, uh, the war, sanctions, the whole thing, why did Russia run a surplus? <laughs> a surplus. I mean, in America, when we go to war, we are running massive deficits. Anytime we do something major, massive deficit. Um, we don't know how to run a surplus anymore. Russia, with all of the issues that came in, ran a $38 billion surplus last year, and that surplus will probably grow even more. Um, we don't understand Russia. Therefore, we can't control Russia. We can't contain Russia. And I would say we don't understand China as well. We, we need to understand that as bad as we got the uh, Russian energy security equation, uh, we will fail on the um, global supply chain equation. You want to destroy the American economy? 
try to go to war with China and then say, we're going to sanction you. Um, that is going to backfire so poorly because we are totally dependent upon a Chinese-dominated global supply chain. And they will shut this thing down. And the other thing is by advertising what we're going to do, because that's the arrogance of the United States. You know, we told the Russians exactly what we were going to do. It's not like Putin went, oh, I don't believe you don't think they're going to do that, do you? No. Okay, let's just keep doing things uh, as normal. And uh, I don't think they're going to do that. Putin went, I think they're going to do that. So what do we have to do to be prepared? What strategies we have to be placed? And the Russians have some of the, you know, the, 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 to denigrate Russia as a, you know, this nation of robots ruled by a singular dictator is absurd. Putin has at his disposal some of the greatest brains in the world, uh, people who actually know Russia and the world, and uh, because they operate on the foundation of reality, not arrogance. They don't believe in Russian manifest destiny, where God has touched them and said, you get to rule the world. They believe in pragmatism, realities. And so they looked around, said, what do we have to do? What changes do we have to make? And they did it, and they beat us. China right now is hearing the United States keep talking about how we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And the Chinese are like, all right, if we go against Taiwan, what do you think America is going to do economically? This, that, and the other thing. Okay, what are our plans to block them? What's plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D? They've got all the options figured out. So when it happens, they will be able to not only initiate an effective economic counterattack, but they will have the ability to adapt as we try to adapt. And at the end of the day, America will lose because we're not that good anymore, guys. We are literally not that good. We're big. And we have a lot of momentum carrying you know, with us from our the past, but we're not that good. And the world is just sidestepping the momentum. And it's, it's going to be game, set, match world against us if we're not careful. But in order to be careful, we have to have leaders that are willing to accept the reality of our present situation. But we don't. We have leaders that are addicted to three words. You ready? USA, USA, USA. These are political leaders that love to hear this nonsense, love to have their crowds chanting this, uh, but those are empty words. What is USA? What is the United States of America anymore? What do we stand for? And now we're getting, you know, that my, my standard thing. It's about the Constitution, baby. That's all we are. The thing that unites us all is a document, a singular document, the Constitution of the United States and the principles, values that are enshrined in that document. And I will challenge your listeners right now. I'm, you probably have an intelligent group of listeners, but... Um, Take a test on the Constitution and tell me if you're going to pass it. What test do you say, Scott? Why don't you take the test that every immigrant who comes to the United States who wants to be an American citizen has to take? Just a basic, straight-up test of the Constitution. Um, they have to get it all right. 100%. And a lot of them do. Um, imagine if every year you had to recertify to be an American. Oh, time to come in. It's like it's like you know getting your vehicle inspected. We're going to get your citizenship inspected today. Oh, okay. Here's your 10 questions on the Constitution. Uh, Scott, you only got two of them right. You've lost your citizenship. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a challenge where Americans had to know the Constitution to maintain their citizenship? But we, of course, are born in the country. The Constitution says we are citizens, and um, therefore, we're allowed to be ignorant. Okay. I mean, I guess ignorance is a constitutional right. <laughs> we can't compel you to be smart. But understand what it means when you're ignorant about the one thing that defines who we are and what we are as a nation. That means that you are no longer cognizant of what you're supposed to be defending. Therefore, when you elect people to higher office and they do things that deviate from the Constitution, like attacking Germany without notifying Congress, you don't realize what a big deal that is. And so we stop being the nation that our founding fathers envisioned when they put together the Constitution and we become something different. We claim to be this, but in reality, we're that. 
And that's where we are today, ladies and gentlemen. Our country is adrift away from the values we claim to have embraced, and we're becoming that which we should condemn. In short, any nation that will conspire to attack an ally for the purpose of hurting its people and its economy so that we can dominate, that is evil. That's not reality. That's not real politics. That's evil. Evil. Joe Biden is an evil president. His administration is an evil administration. And this country, because we are doing nothing about it, is an evil nation. That means that we are all evil people. We are citizens who deserve the world's disdain, even hatred, because we're the worst thing that's happened to the world right now. We are the problem. We aren't the solution. I completely agree. Um, I, I don't think it's the people of the United States that are evil. Um, I think most of the people in the United States, they go to work, they make just enough money to live their lives. They don't have time to, to get educated on these topics. So I don't think they're the ones that are, that are evil. Good Americans, like good Germans, I don't buy into it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, I condemn the German people for allowing Adolf Hitler's rise. Yeah. Um, they could have done more. I know life is tough, especially in Weimar Republic. Mm. Their economic problems uh, make what we suffer today, and many Americans have a pale in comparison. Yeah. But um, no, uh, there's no such thing as a good German. All Germans, except the ones that actually went out there and did something, got arrested, put in concentration camps, um, and were executed. Uh, the Germans who simply did their job, got up in the morning, went to work, came home, kissed their wives, raised their children, and all that, they were the problem because they were the ones who should have stopped Adolf Hitler. So the American people who get up in the morning, go to work, come home, kiss their wives, kiss their husbands, uh, raise the children, um, they're the problem. Because in a nation that begins the preamble, we the people of the United States, <laughs> what does that mean? We the people of the United States. So let's own that statement, which means we the people of the United States are responsible for everything that happens in this country. And it's not good citizenship to say it's too hard. <laughs> good citizenship is meant to be hard. It's not meant to be easy. And if you choose the easy way out, you are facilitating evil. You are literally conspiring with evil. And that makes you evil. So yeah, I, I know what you're saying, Bradley. I, my, my heart goes out to my fellow Americans too, but I'm not giving anybody a pass anymore. None, zero, no passes. I understand. I, I think uh, the American people, they're so propagandized. You know, th they get on TikTok, they get on Instagram, they get on social media, they turn on the TV and everything they see, it's, oh, Russia is horrible. Russia is horrible. China is horrible. North Korea wants to kill you. They all want to kill you. And we're the only people that can save you. So, you know, if that's all they're seeing, you know, what do you what do you expect them to think? You know what I mean? And I, I get what you're saying. They need to branch out. They need to educate themselves. Well, let's, I, let's, let's look at it this way. Um, you've got behind you Kansas City chief thing so you're a fan yes i mean did you know about patrick mahomes did you did you know his statistics you, i mean could you sit there and talk about how good a quarterback he was on the third and something situation how did you know that i mean i'm not blaming you but did you play fantasy football were you in a fantasy football league Thank all right you. and in any americans in a fantasy football league i guarantee you spend hours a week going through statistics to make sure that you pick the right players for your team 
because it's all about performance. And that performance is based on actuarial tables that you modify because you are a concerned fan. You are engaged. You are committed to winning fantasy football. And I'm not condemning people who do that. I'm just pointing out that you are willing to put a hell of a lot of effort into fantasy football and then say, I don't have time to understand about this old world stuff. No, no, no. You opted out of reality yeah. and opted into fantasy. And um, that's that's my whole thing. I, I mean, if literally you wake up in the morning, look, I'm going to be the first one to, to admit this is hard. Look, Bradley, and I know you're smart. I know, I mean, just on your questions alone, I know you spend time studying this, so I'm not picking on you. It's okay to, you know, do fantasy football. Um, you know, I read books for fun sometimes because I need to get the hell away from all this other crap. Uh, my kids turn me on to World of Warcraft. I don't play it much anymore, but sometimes if I got an hour or two, I'll go in there and disappear into that stupid game because you need to unplug from the yeah. from the insanity, from the madness. I wake up in the morning and I go to bed at night and all I do is this. Study this stuff. Talk about it. Write about it. And it's a full-time job. And it's more than a full-time job because I'm putting in hours that would just blind people. Um, and I still get it wrong. It's still hard for me. So I'm not sitting here saying this is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But when we're talking about our nation, if we're talking about the direction our nation is heading, then we need to reprioritize. And that's the thing about a team. You know, let's say that I, I that Scott Ritter had a team and I do. I have a I have a I have a, a team that helps me. Uh, you know, I, I do podcasts and uh, I'm helped by the fact that I have a good friend, Jeff Norman, who actually takes over the the, the technical stuff because there wouldn't be a podcast without him. Otherwise you'd have some old idiot sitting there staring into a camera, trying to figure out how to log into zoom. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I get, I get that help. I have editors who help me publish things. Um, so there is a team. Um, but if I had an even bigger team, let's say I was Fareed Zachariah with all his CNN staff, you know, my life would become simple because I could then delegate things. I could have people read things for me and do up little synopsis and come to me and all this stuff. And I, 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 I could bring this under control. Um, Americans need to start building teams. You know, this is why, this is why, you know, community groups are good. Look, and, and we know how to do this. If you want to, you know, we have a thing going on here in Bethlehem where we're trying to stop, um, you know, development that's going to increase traffic on roads where our children play and where our animals are. And we just don't want, you know, a 60% increase in uh, vehicular traffic because somebody's going to get hit by a car, somebody's going to get killed, and the quality of life drops, diminishes. But it, if you're one person trying to fight that, you can't. But you come together as a, as a citizen action group, and you you know spread load, you get people doing different things, you coordinate with one another. Next thing you know, you're starting to have a meaningful impact. Um, you can do that with other things. We, But we have to organize as concerned citizens, and that's where I think I think People think this is too hard, so they unplug. And it's very easy to unplug in America because we, the system is designed to dumb you down. The system's designed to put you in front of a TV set with a remote that allows you to do anything you want to do in front of the TV set. The system's designed to put you in front of a computer or in front of a, you know, a, a smartphone and just have you scroll all day. Um, you know, and, and that's the, the system's designed to dumb you down. Yeah. And why? Because the system doesn't want you to be a good citizen. The greatest threat to present-day America is the concerned citizen, the 
intelligent citizen, the informed citizen, the activist citizen. That's the greatest threat to the establishment, but it's the only thing that will save this country. Yeah, you're completely correct. And that's why people like you, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Caleb Maupin, but he's a he's a journalist and he's also on that same list as a uh, that you yeah. put on. And uh and uh you know that they, they push they push people like you down, they cancel you, they call you racist, they call you, you know, they they talk about your past legal troubles and try to try to oh, use that as yeah, they Look, try to use off a duck's back now, man. I mean, I, I, I've had to learn to stop getting angry about it because yeah. then all you do is spend your whole life, you know, furious. Yeah, man. And that's what they want to do. They want to make you angry. Um, you know, but you talk about the system, the TV, the media. It's not just that. You know, look at the food that we feed people in the United States. It's full of sugar. It's full of all these terrible seed oils. I mean, that we know that these things hurt your brain. That we know that it causes ADHD. And we know that it causes all of those things, you know. So they're, they're trying to keep us down on, on every level. Um, I wanted to go back to a little bit ago. You mentioned Saddam Hussein and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, Saddam obviously was not a amazing human being. He wasn't a great, the best guy. But like you were saying, living standards in Iraq or Iraq were increasing. When, when Saddam Hussein was in charge, you know, they, their their currency was increasing. They their live the livelihood of the Iraqi people was going up. And, and you know, the, the U.S. just couldn't have that. And uh, George W. Bush, I actually met George W. Bush when I was like five years old. I don't really remember it. He, I, he, he went to some event that I was at. I, I think I shook his hand, you know, and uh, later on, you know, I was five. But later on in like 2008, I remember uh, I remember I, I always watched uh, military documentaries especially world war ii so i'd watch the military channel and in 2008 it was mccain and uh, obama running against each other and my dad voted for john mccain so i was like all bought in on john mccain trying to go for john mccain and it's just funny to think that back then i knew nothing i was eight i was eight years old or whatever and uh but you know i've really come a long way from you know thinking i like john mccain to you know realize you know john mccain is a criminal of the highest degree you know what i mean um my question to you though bradley is yeah. um have you washed that hand yet? What do you mean? The one that shook George W. Bush. Oh, yeah. You watched uh, it, or is it, you know? Many, many times. At the time, I thought it was very cool. I thought, oh, my God, I just shook the president's hand. How Why not? It's the president of the United States. It, yeah. it, it's the office of the presidency. It's supposed to be held in high regard. Yeah. So who wouldn't want to shake the president's hand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, they, me. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could be around Biden and not be, uh, and, and be friendly to him. Um, I wanted to talk about the tanks that recently got sent to Ukraine. I know that's a bit of old news. Uh, you know, many of them won't even be, at least the Abrams tanks, won't even be there for a year. And I've heard you make the point that every tank you send to Ukraine, you're just killing four more Ukrainians. You're guaranteeing the deaths of four more Ukrainians. And, uh, you know, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, by the time... But in this case, it, it might not be a bad thing because, for instance, um, in, in uh, CNN uh, sent a film crew to to England where they're training the Ukrainians on uh, the Challenger 2 tank. Mm. And, uh, you know, you see the clip that CNN puts out and it shows you these wonderful Ukrainian soldiers backing the tank up, driving the tank out, learning how to maneuver the tank. But there's a clip they didn't show where the soldiers in there, they wave and then they see how really? like, they deserve to die. I hope they all die. Right. And I mean, it's in all sincerity. Anybody who has embraced that ideology I hope you die, and I hope the death is painful. I mean, we can take a you know Bob Dylan song from Masters of War. I hope you die, and, and you know, and, and, and I'll spit on your grave. Um, in Germany, they had to put up a 
a, uh, a letter, a notice in the barracks where the Ukrainian soldiers are being trained on the Leopard 2. And uh, it basically said um, to our Ukrainian guests, uh, please don't put uh, iron crosses and uh, Nazi symbols on the tanks uh, while you're in Germany. You can do that when you get back to Ukraine, but don't right. do it here because it runs afoul of the law. Right. Wait a minute. Why are you even training these people then? Especially Germany. For God's sakes, you know who these people are. You know what they are. Uh, you know that they're going to bars at night and they're singing the Bandera song. You know, Bandera is our father, Ukraine is our mother, whatever they want to say. These are evil people. And again, I hope that they die because Nazis just don't deserve to live, especially Nazis that are being empowered with Western weaponry. Uh, no. No, I agree with you. I mean, the the people that are being forced forcefully forcibly uh, conscripted in Ukraine, you know, the regular people yeah, that are forced on the street. I don't yeah. feel that way about them. I, I feel very bad for them, and I wish that yeah. wasn't happening. But even people, even Ukrainians who who um, who aren't Nazis but are are fighting for Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I feel sorry for them too because as I as I said, you know, the Ukrainian military has some of the finest soldiers in the world in it. These are guys who have proven themselves on the battlefield. Well, they're trained and, by uh, the U.S., so I'd hope so. Yeah, but the heart is Ukrainian. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, and I've said this, and I'll, I'll say now, let's say the war stopped right now. Stopped. And uh, the Ukrainian military collected itself, pivoted west, and marched. They would roll through Poland like a hot knife through butter because Poland can't fight. They would get to Germany. There would be no resistance because the Germans can't fight. There's not a Bundeswehr worthy of the name. They could move on to Paris because the French can't fight. France can't get 50 Leclerc tanks out of the barracks because all, all, they're all broken. Um, that's why they only want to give 14 because they're literally giving away 30% of their tanks, their operational tanks, to Ukraine. The British, there's nothing. You can take the entire British military, put it in a soccer stadium, and have 30,000 unsold seats. So, you know, we can, you know, it, it which tells you something, that if the Ukrainians are that good and the Russians are beating them, what's it say about the Russians? Yeah, of course. This is something that's bothered me for well over a year now is the U.S. media, the U.S. government. They try to act like Russia some pushover country. What? You know, you just had an entire Cold War against them. You're constantly worried about their military. You're constantly trying to counter well, them. Well, no, the mistake was that for 20 years we stopped worrying about their military. Mm. And there's the fatal mistake. Uh, General, um, I think his name's Kaboli. Uh, uh, he's the uh, head of the U.S. Um, European Command, the supreme commander of the European forces, uh, spoke in Sweden uh, last month. And uh, he said, we ain't ready for this. We can't fight this. We, it's, you know, we, we, we cannot fight the war that's being fought in Ukraine right now. It's on a scope and scale that's mind boggling and we haven't prepared for it. Because for the last 20 years, the United States and NATO have been focused on Afghanistan, nation building Afghanistan. They've been focused on Iraq. They've been focused on expanding their presence in the Middle East and, you know, and, and, and going to the Pacific. But the last thing they've been focused on is preparing for a large scale ground combat, uh, a war in Europe against a Russian thing. They've denigrated it. You know, I, I don't know how many times um, you, you hear, go back and look at the papers, look at the statements. Um, you know, NATO against a near peer opponent. A near peer opponent? You're talking about Russia? Yes, the Russians are near peer. Oh, no, 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 dude, dude. The Russians are peer. In fact, is you're the near peer. The Russians are superior to you in almost every way, shape, and form. Um, why? Well, gosh, when the Russians bring a unit out of the barracks, they can bring most of their tanks with them because they maintain them. They work. Um, 
again, Germany. You want to send an armored battalion to Lithuania? Never a good idea, given the history, but they did it anyways, the battle group. They had to basically cannibalize all their brigades to get that one battalion up there. There's nothing left. Germany can't get anything out of the barracks right now. The French can't. You know, the British have nothing. The Dutch, nothing. There's nothing in Europe right now. There is no army worthy of the name, and Kaboli acknowledged it. He, he basically said, what they're doing, the intensity of that combat, uh, we will, we would all die within days. One, we don't have enough ammunition. We, you know, If you're preparing for a war against Russia and you don't understand that the Russians really like artillery and that they're going to be pounding you with tens of thousands of rounds every day, uh, and if you're only prepared to fire 600 rounds back, you're going to lose this equation because you're going to have to up your artillery expenditure uh, like the Ukrainians had to learn. Now the Ukrainians are firing, what, six, 8,000 rounds a day, um, maybe 12. Uh, so they're, they're up in their expenditure. But now you have to replenish that, but you haven't prepared for that. Your industry hasn't been producing that. You don't have enough ammunition. And Kabul said, we're out of ammo. We got nothing. Stoltenberg had to admit, we're out of ammo. We got nothing. On February 12th, 14th, <coughs> Ukrainians showed up in Ramstein thinking they were going to get tanks and airplanes. And instead, we're told, you're going to lose the war. Straight up, you're going to lose the war. And there's nothing we can do to help you. Now, that's not being said in the West, but listen to what we said to them. You're going to run out of ammunition this summer. And there's no ammunition left to give you. There's nothing we can do. You're going to run out of ammunition. Now, if you're fighting a war of this level and intensity where artillery is one of the key factors of this war, and you're told you're going to run out of artillery ammunition this summer, what does that tell you? You're going to lose this war. And that's what the West has told Ukraine. You're going to lose this war. So now look what's happening. Suddenly people are starting to pull back on the tanks. The Germans, we ain't giving them all those tanks. We're only giving them some of these tanks. Um, other nations start going, no, we might keep our tanks. Airplanes, we're going to keep our airplanes. We don't have any airplanes to give you. All the promises are dissipating. Why? The war is lost. There's nothing that can be done to change this. Everything you're hearing in the West about our Ukrainian counteroffensive or not, how can you launch a counteroffensive against an army that's bigger than yours now, better than yours, and has significantly more artillery than you when your artillery, no matter how good it is, doesn't have any shells to fire? You can't. The war is over. Yeah. Um, can you explain the uh, role of the tank in modern warfare? It, it seems like it's changed from, you know, the, the past of World War II and whatnot. They seem to operate a very different manner now. Yeah, when, when tanks first came out, um, you know, it was, it was advantage tank. Um, it was, you know, they were, they were difficult to kill. Um, generally, the best anti-tank weapon was another tank. And, um, and so you, you, you could have these giant battles of maneuver with the tanks playing a dominant role. As technology developed, um, you, you, we started to get these anti-tank missiles that um, you know, were pretty good. But then, then you have a technology base. Can the, you know, this warhead penetrate this armor that make this armor better? Boom, et cetera. Then tactics evolved because now instead of the tanks going, hey, did a little straight up the middle, they have to be accompanied by infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, that have the ability to suppress these um, other infantry units with anti-tank rounds. So the tank can focus on the tank. Infantry's focus on the infantry. It changes the nature of battle. It actually makes it more complex. Combined arms fighting. You have to bring in artillery, and you have to do everything in a coordinated fashion. Um, it, but today, the lethality of uh, weapons that can kill tanks is, um, is, is 
is real. I mean, and so the idea of swarming a defense with, uh, with armor is just an outdated tactic. Um, so, you know, tanks still have a role. We see tanks uh, playing a role, but uh, the, the big arrow advances that, uh, that existed in World War II probably aren't going to happen because of the ability to build defenses in depth that can absorb an armor attack and deplete it before it gets through. So tanks now are part of the meat grinder thing. They come up, they provide limited fire support with infantry support, and then they pull back, artillery hits, they come up again, grind away, pull back, boom. Um, and that's 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 where tanks are. So tactics have changed. Um, you know, the nature of war has changed. And um, I, again, I think Russia's mastered this tech this technique. Take a look at the United States. So what are we going to do with tanks? We're going to go back to Desert Storm, where you know we get our company, and it's going to go in the staggered configuration with all tank going out this way, advancing, and then it's going to run into an ambush, and they're all going to die um, because they're using outdated tactics. The United States hasn't fought, again, anything that resembles what's going on in Ukraine. We're, we're just not familiar. Now, hopefully, we have people studying it. But again, we're studying it um, from a position of arrogance because you just take a look at the conclusions. The Russians are inept. The Russians are this. The Russians are that. So if you don't respect the Russians, therefore, you're going to be a detractor of their tactics. Without What you should be saying is Russians are pretty damn good. And look what they've done. They've adapted to a new tactical approach to war that takes into account the technologies of death that had been brought to bear. And maybe we want, might want to pay attention to that because if we come in with our tactics that have a direct lineage to World War II, we're all going to die. Hello and welcome to another update. In this one, I'll be covering the Volodar front as well as the Bakhmut front. Starting out in the Bakhmut front, as that is quicker, the Russian forces are continuing their attacks in the recent locations that they've recently captured territory from. So eastern Bakhmut in the direction of the northern outskirts of Bakhmut in the direction of Yahidne, Berhivka, as well as the northern outskirts. We see that the Russian forces are attacking from across the river line and downwards from the northern area, as well as westwards of Yehidne, and to the east of Berhivka, as well as the north of Berhivka, where they're using the high ground, as well as the higher positions to the east to attack Berhivka from. And at the same time, they're attacking in the direction of Dubovo Vasilivka as they attempt to take this northern area as well. And they're also advancing westwards from this position, trying to capture the forest line here to the northwest of the village. And that is it for the Bakhmut front. Moving on to the Volodar front, we see here that the Ukrainian forces are successfully counterattacking in this direction. According to Syriac Mapping, who updated this part, the Ukrainian forces have conducted offensive operations since five days ago and have successfully recaptured this whole part here, as we can see in my recap mapping. So they managed to recapture the parts of the Dacia areas, as well as southwards towards this western Dacia area, and then the southern one. And apparently the Dacia area is something along the lines of vacation homes or something similar to that. So that's why they are called some different types of Dacia areas. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it either. Either way, the fighting is now continuing in these residential areas here to the south in the direction of the river line, and the Russian forces have retreated across the river line to Pavlivka and have left this northern bank of the river line. 
and then they are defending this eastern part as well as holding their positions to the north of Mikilske in the direction of the coal mine to the northeast of Uledar. And that is all for this update. Thank you all for watching and have a great day.